So, my question to begin to you is, what, what do you think of when you think of Thanksgiving? Most of us think of turkey with all the fixings. Some of us think of football. Some of us think of spending time with the family, or maybe it's just falling asleep on the couch after the tryptophan kicks in. It's a time of contentment and reflection on the wonderful things that the Lord has blessed us with over the past year. And then, when the calm and contentment of thanksgiving has faded, it's replaced with this. Walmart for a cell phone sale that they had last Thanksgiving. The most interesting people shop at Walmart, don't they? I mean, I just love to go and people watch, but then that means that I'm one of those people and they're watching me, and so it all kind of gets confusing. But isn't it curious that the most frenzied shopping day of the year, the day when more money is spent on getting stuff than any other day, is the day after we just spent giving thanks for what we already have. You ever think about that before? Frankly, that that thought, it's a bit disturbing to me. Because it tells me that we as a culture really don't understand what Thanksgiving is all about. Of course, there are no coincidences, and and the devil, he's, he's very good at what he does. And it's my personal opinion that Black Friday is a very intentional scheme of the enemy to quickly get our minds off of giving thanks to our God. In fact, it's gotten so bad that stores have begun to open up on Thanksgiving Day now. It's a pretty stark contrast, isn't it? You have, you have Thanksgiving and contentment followed right away by Black Friday and the craziness of getting more stuff. Discontentment. Unfortunately, discontentment is what this culture thrives on and actually promotes. Did did you ever think about that? That our culture promotes discontentment in your life? Think about it. All of the advertising, all of the slogans, all the methods and self-help books about improving your lot in life, it's all designed to make you feel discontent with where you are right now. It all promotes an attitude of discontentment. This culture says you shouldn't be content with your circumstances. You should always be seeking more, newer, better stuff. Always trying to improve your circumstances. Don't be content with where you are or what you have. That's the deception that the devil is trying to get us to fall into. And I want to be very clear on this. Discontentment is sin. Discontentment is sin. You may have never thought of it that way before, but but if you read the scriptures that talk about contentment, you'll see that it's evident that an attitude of discontentment is a sinful attitude. 
So on this Thanksgiving weekend, at the beginning of the Christmas season, the Lord has put on my heart a topic that we need to be reminded of. God's call to contentment. God's call to contentment. Overcoming the call of the world to discontentment and focusing on God's call to contentment. So as you turn with me in your Bibles, we're going to be reading from 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we're going to be studying what the Lord says about the importance of contentment and the subtle ways that discontentment can seep into our hearts. So as you're turning to 1 Timothy chapter 6, I'm going to pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for your truth and the contentment that you give us. I pray, Lord, that every one of us would be able to focus on your truth and we would learn how to become content. Pray, Lord, against the distractions of the enemy right now because we know, Lord, that he is going to try to take away our focus. And so, Lord, prepare our hearts and help us to hear what you would have us say and learn. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Timothy chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 3. Paul writes, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, we're going to pause right there, and we're going to get some background and context for this passage. So, so Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, who, who is the young pastor of the Ephesian church, a church that Paul himself planted. Paul has left Timothy behind in Ephesus in order to shepherd these people and to help train them in godliness. Unfortunately, false teachers, a subject that we've been learning a lot about, have crept in and began to teach false doctrines, including false ideas about godliness, specifically teaching that godliness was a means of material and circumstantial gain. That's the end of verse 5. They were teaching the lie that if you follow Jesus, you'll get rich quick. You'll have nothing but prosperity and never have any problems. So Paul is confronting this lie in the Ephesian church as he writes to Timothy. He's teaching Timothy how to confront the lie. And you know, Paul may as well have been writing to us today. Because we are dealing with that same issue in the American church. See, not only has our culture swallowed the pill of materialism, but unfortunately, the American church has followed right behind. And in many ways, we're just like the Ephesians, with many false teachers telling us that godliness is a means of gain. That's why Paul continues on into verse 6 when he writes, Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. And, and this right here really is the key verse for today. And, and I would really encourage you to memorize it if you could. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. It's nice, short and sweet. 
With a nice little play on words here, Paul answers the lie that godliness is a means of material and circumstantial gain, and he replaces it with the truth that there is great gain in godliness, but it comes when that godliness is coupled with an attitude of contentment. Now, you might be asking yourself, okay, well, what does Paul mean by the words godliness and contentment? Well, in the Greek, godliness meant reverence or piety. It basically referred to the pursuit of God-likeness and holiness. Contentment, on the other hand, comes from a Greek word that literally meant to have self-sufficiency. And it's the idea that everything that you could ever possibly need to have complete satisfaction is found within you. And it's not affected by anything going on outside of you, neither your circumstances nor your possessions. See, contentment is all about having an attitude of satisfaction, an attitude of gratitude, regardless of what circumstances you find yourself in. And really, really, it's, it's synonymous with the biblical concept of joy. Part of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. Of course, an attitude of contentment doesn't, it doesn't just happen naturally. It's not something that all of a sudden we just, oop, I'm so content now. It's something that the Spirit of the Lord produces within us. It's part of the fruit. And it's something that as we are refined and matured in our faith, it's something that we learn. That's why Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 4, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Amen? So, so how do we learn how to be content? Well, if you read scripture, the answer is actually pretty straightforward. Appreciating what Jesus has done for you. That's really what it's all about. It starts with appreciating what Jesus has done for you. At its heart, contentment is all about being satisfied by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for our eternal salvation. Amen? That's why discontentment is sin. Discontentment disregards the sacrifice of Christ and says, I need more than that. That's not enough to satisfy me. But when we're content, we have a clear view of what Jesus saved us from. And nothing else compares to that. He saved us from hell if we just put our faith in him. Therefore, it doesn't matter what circumstances I find myself in because I'm saved. That's how we learn how to be content. We have salvation through Christ, and everything else pales in comparison. So Paul is saying here that there is great gain in pursuing and following God if that pursuit is coupled with an inner satisfaction and joy that comes with knowing what Jesus did for us. And therefore, we don't need anything else. There is great gain in godliness with 
contentment. But then you know what? Here comes the world. Here comes our culture making every effort to make us forget about what Jesus did for us and trying to get us to focus on our circumstances, the things that we'd like to see changed or the things that we'd like to have. And we start taking our eyes off of Jesus and pretty soon we're discontent. And that slow fade from discontentment to contentment is what the majority of this passage is all about. And so we're going to look at four ways that Paul shows us how we can fade from discontentment to contentment. And the first way we see in verse 5. So let's go back to verse 5. And we see that contentment fades when we feel entitled. When we feel entitled our contentment will fade to discontentment. When we have the sense that we are owed something, Paul writes that we have fallen for the lie of the world because we are believing that godliness is a means of gain. That's what the false teachers were teaching in Ephesus. The enemy is going to try to make us think that because of our pursuit of God, we deserve to have prosperity that we have the right to have nice, pleasant things. You know what? I'm a good person, and so God should treat me well. That is what entitlement says, and that's a lie. Pastor Tim preached on entitlement two weeks ago when he reminded us that God owes us what? Nothing. He owes us absolutely nothing. In fact, the only thing that we actually deserve is death. And when we begin to forget that fact, that we're owed nothing but death, and we start to believe that we're entitled to better circumstances and to have more stuff, our contentment will fade into discontentment, and our value of what Jesus Christ has done for us will shrink. And our opinion of the cross will lower and lessen. Let me give you an example of this principle. (laughs) When my family sits down for dinner, sometimes, most of the time, my kids don't really want to be at the dinner table. They want to go off and they want to do something else, whether it's go play with their friends or whatever. And when we finally get them on the dinner table, usually they never eat all of their food, right? It's one of those things like you got to eat all of your food. And so my wife and I have set forth some, some rules and repercussions to help guide their behavior at the dinner table and to encourage them to eat their food. Now, sometimes when my wife is feeling particularly magnanimous and loving she'll also make a dessert. And if the kids behave themselves, and if the kids eat all their food, then they can have dessert. But you know what? A funny thing has happened. Now the kids expect dessert every time they behave themselves and eat all their food. And right there is the rub. What began as a blessing to them, 
something that they knew they didn't deserve, it was just something that their loving mother would make for them, has now devolved into something that they feel entitled to because I ate all my food and I didn't throw my mashed potatoes at my brother. And you know what? Entitlement works the exact same way with us. We receive God's blessings here and there, and pretty soon we begin to believe that we deserve them. The fact that all of God's blessings are a gift seems to fade away from our understanding. And when we don't receive them, we become discontent, angry, indignant even, that I didn't get what I deserved. Now, practically speaking, what does this mean for us? Well, it means that we need to realize that we don't deserve to have that raise that we think we should get. Or even to have a job in the first place. It means that we don't have the right to have a happy marriage. Or even to be married at all. We don't deserve to have our kids listen to us all the time. Or to even have children. And we aren't entitled to have a healthy life till the day we die. We aren't entitled to have lots of nice things and financial security. Those are all lies that the world wants you to think. That you deserve these things. That's not the truth. And when we begin to believe the lie that we're entitled to any of those things or a million others, that's the indicator that we have forgotten how sinful we are and we've disregarded what Jesus has done for us. Godliness is not a means of gain. Godliness does not entitle us to anything. But there is great spiritual gain in godliness with contentment when we can be content with the eternal gift of salvation. Which transitions us to verse 7, where Paul gives us the second way that we can grow discontent when he writes, For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Paul teaches us that contentment fades when we focus on the present and forget the fleeting nature of this life. When we begin to live as if this current life is more important than our eternal destination, that's when we'll start to grow discontent. Why? Well, because the things of this world are fading away, and they will always fail to satisfy us. Just just listen to some of the words of these men, some of the richest men in our country's history. John B. Rockefeller said, I have made millions and they have all brought me no happiness. Cornelius Vanderbilt said, The care of millions of dollars is too great a load. There is no pleasure in it. Jacob Astor, the first multimillionaire in the United States way back in the 1700s, said, I am the most miserable man on earth. And Henry Ford, after designing the Model T and 
producing it, making his millions, said, I was happier when I was doing mechanics work. While John D. Rockefeller said, the poorest man I know is the man who has nothing but money. We brought nothing into this world and we won't take anything with us into eternity. You may have heard it said, there's no U-Haul vans riding behind a hearse. Right? It's very true. There's no pockets in a burial shroud. We don't take anything with us. Everything in this world is fading away and can't satisfy, just like these guys learned. And that's why Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When we start focusing on the present life and accumulating treasures and possessions, Scripture teaches us that our heart will be focused here as well, which will ultimately lead to discontentment. So so if your motivation in life drives you to work hard so you can have more stuff, or to work hard so that you can save up and enjoy a nice, satisfying retirement, can I just gently point out that you're forgetting that this present life is going to fade and it will never satisfy you. And ultimately, it's going to leave you empty and discontent. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't work hard. I'm not saying that we aren't called to be good stewards of the health and the possessions that the Lord entrusts to us to oversee. But what scripture says is that if accumulation of wealth and the pursuit of a comfortable life is what is motivating you, you're going to be discontent since you can't take any of it with you into eternity. In fact, Jesus in Luke chapter 12 taught a parable on this. And he said that if we live and think this way, then we are fools. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be a fool. Now, you might be thinking that you're reasonably content with your life. That things are going pretty well right now. Well, let me ask you a question. How content would you be if your circumstances suddenly changed? How content would you be if your health all of a sudden disappeared? Or if all of your possessions or your income went away, you lost your job? Or if prized relationships were lost, your mother, your father, your best friend, your children, or your ambitions were completely dashed, or any other circumstance that you can put yourself in, how would you respond? Would you be able to say, like Job, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return? The Lord gives... And the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, most of us are not going to be able to answer those questions because we've never gone through something like that. But one day we probably will. We'll all face some trial 
That's what Scripture teaches us, to expect when the trial comes, not if. How will you respond? Will you be able to focus on eternity, or will you focus on the present? We have to strive to stay focused on Jesus and the eternity that awaits us with the constant recognition that the things of this life are just going to fade away and they're empty and meaningless. Knowing that if we have a relationship with Jesus, we don't need anything else. And a lack of understanding of the difference between our needs and our wants is the third way that we can fade into discontentment. You see, our contentment fades when we are filled with our wants and desires and forget our true needs. Paul writes in verses 8 through 10 of chapter 6, But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But for those who desire to be rich, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Paul shows us that when we begin to follow after our desires, instead of being content with merely having our needs met, we're going to grow discontent. And worse than that, we may even be led into destruction, falling for the temptations and the snares of this world, and blurring the lines between needs and wants is one of the tactics that this culture uses all the time. Advertising campaigns and marketing companies excel at making us believe that we just have to have this new product. I just have to get that new Xbox One. I got to get that new iPhone. You know what? This is a really great deal on a vacation. I think I need that. We're constantly told that we need this or that, and pretty soon, if we're not careful we actually start believing it. I want you to watch this clip, which illustrates how easy it is to forget the difference between our needs and our desires. Let's watch. And I don't need any of this. I don't need this stuff. And I don't need you. I don't need anything except this. And I tell you, that's the only thing I need is this. I don't need this or this. Just this ashtray. Just this paddle game. The ashtray and the paddle game, that's all I need. And this remote control. The ashtray and the paddle game and the remote control, that's all I need. And these matches. The ashtray and these matches and the remote control and the paddle ball. This lamp, the ashtray, this paddle game, and the remote control, and the lamp, and that's all I need. And that's all I need, too. I don't need one 
ridiculousness of the things Navin Johnson says he needs in the movie The Jerk. But the reality is that we do the same thing all the time. We fall into the same trap. There are things that we think we absolutely have to have in order to be content. And we believe the lie that if we have them, we're finally going to have our happiness. The problem is that once we get them, we find out that it wasn't what I thought it was, doesn't satisfy me, or it fades away. And pretty soon, new desires emerge, new things I think I need. The Greek philosopher Epicurus said, the secret of contentment is not to add to a man's possessions, but to take away from his desires. And the wise writer of Proverbs chapter 30 understood this truth when he wrote, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Give me only what I need. That's the prayer. Nothing more and nothing less. Don't meet all my desires, just meet my needs, Lord God. And this is exactly what Paul tells us we should be content with in verse 8. If we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But you know, the only way that's possible is if we've first received our salvation through Christ. Once we've done that, then we can be content with whatever the Lord sees fit to bless us with. But until that time, until we put our faith in Christ, of course we're going to be discontent. So, if you're here today and you haven't put your faith in Christ, can I invite you to be content for the first time in your life? Truly content by putting your faith in Christ? That's why the psalmist in Psalm 23 can say, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. The Lord is all I need. When we have Jesus and we truly understand what he's done for us, there's nothing else that we'll desire. That's all we'll need. Now, this doesn't mean that we need to forsake all worldly possessions and and go live in a monastery somewhere. Okay, that's, that's not what we're being called to. It simply means that we should be able to live out the words of Hebrews 13, which says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Whatever the Lord blesses you with, whatever little or whatever plenty, be content with it and praise God for his abundant blessing. And more importantly, praise God for his son. As John MacArthur taught, 
A truly godly person is motivated not by the love of money, but by the love of God. He seeks the greatest riches, and the greatest riches are spiritual contentment and complete trust in the ever-present, ever-able God. The only thing that makes people rich is contentment. That's the only thing. So instead of being like Navin Johnson and thinking that we need this or that, let's pursue God and find contentment in his son and the blessings that he sees fit to give us because that is truly all we need. And that leads us to our final means by which we can slide into discontentment. Paul teaches us that contentment fades when we fall into complacency. When we fall into complacency, when we stop pursuing God. In verses 11 and 12, he writes, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul shows us that we'll fall into discontentment when we become complacent, lazy, and bored with our faith. And you know, in my opinion, this is probably the biggest cause of discontentment in most Christians. So we put our faith in Jesus and, and things are going well for a time, but then pretty soon we start to relax. And we start to just kind of drift away and become lackadaisical in our faith. No longer pursuing God and slowly we fade into discontentment. And notice here that Paul is addressing the man of God, the Christian. We are to pursue godliness. That's what he's calling us to. And right here, right here lies the great irony of this passage. Because Paul says that the way for us to become content is to have an ever-present and pervasive spiritual discontentment. Now, hold on a second, you might be thinking. I thought that we've been learning that discontentment is sin. Well, it is sin. Discontentment is sin with regard to our circumstances and our possessions. But when it comes to our spiritual walk with God, Scripture tells us that we should be discontent. We should always be striving to draw closer to God, always trying to know Him more deeply and more intimately. In fact, Jesus taught this in Matthew chapter 5 when he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And the psalmist in Psalm 63 knew this when he wrote, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. How badly 
Do you want to know God? Do you hunger and thirst after him? We can't become spiritually content because when we become spiritually content, when we think we've arrived spiritually, that's when we stop earnestly seeking God. And the things of this world will slowly become more and more enticing and we'll take our eyes off of Jesus and we'll grow discontent. Some of you might remember that my wife raises chickens. Well, we have two chickens left after an unfortunate incident with a fox. And my wife sent me an angry text message this week. She said, Matthew, one of our chickens is pecking the feathers off of the other chicken. I said, oh, that's... Okay, why are you upset with me about this? And she said, well, I did some research, and I find out that the most plausible explanation as to why the chicken is pecking the other chicken is because that chicken is bored. Apparently, especially in the wintertime, when the chickens stop laying eggs, they can get bored. So she was yelling at me on text message saying, our chickens are discontent. (laughs) And it's because of you, because you're preaching on it this week. I just said, alleluia, sermon illustration, boom. (laughs) But, But you know, we can't be like those chickens. We can't become bored with our faith, especially when we go through those cold times when we feel distant from God, that's when we're most susceptible. And pretty soon, we become complacent and apathetic and lazy in our faith, and we start pecking at the things of the world. Now, let me take a little nibble here. Let me take a little nibble there. And all of a sudden, we're discontent. That's why Proverbs 14 says, The backslider in heart will be filled with the fruit of his ways. And a good man will be filled with the fruit of his ways. When we become spiritually complacent and fall away from pursuing God, we're going to be filled with discontentment. But if we can stay steadfast and hunger and thirst after our Lord will be filled and satisfied with contentment. And that brings us all the way back to Black Friday. And all those shoppers fighting each other over the deals for the things that they think will make them satisfied. Or that they think will make their friends satisfied. Instead of fighting for that stuff... Scripture tells us that we should flee from those things. Flee from this materialistic mindset. Otherwise, it's going to leave us empty and discontent. We're not supposed to fight for material gain. We're supposed to fight the good fight of the faith. We're called to fight for a deeper faith in our Lord. That's what will bring us contentment. And it all starts not 
by looking forward to the things that we can get on Black Friday, but by remembering the most important Friday in the history of the world. The Friday that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. If we fight half as hard for a deeper understanding and appreciation of what Jesus did for us on Good Friday as the world does for meaningless things on Black Friday, then I'm confident that we'll be content and we'll receive great spiritual blessing as we pursue godliness with contentment. Don't get sucked into the lies of this world. Don't fall for the deception that you're entitled to a prosperous life. Remember that you are owed nothing. I am owed nothing. The only thing I deserve is death. And we can't focus on the things of this present life that are fading away. Let's focus on things of eternal value. Recognizing what our true needs are. That first and foremost, we need Jesus. Amen. And then gratefully accepting whatever the Lord blesses us with beyond that. And once the Lord has helped us to begin to learn how to be content, once the Spirit begins to produce that joy within us, we can't grow complacent in our faith. We can't become lazy and bored, pecking at the world. We have to flee from the deception and fight for godliness with contentment. This Christmas season, and and every other season, let's do these things. Let's focus on Jesus and learn to be content. Let's answer God's call to contentment, so that like Paul, we can say, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Amen? Amen.